Well, my name's Jay Sowell. I'm from Chippewa, the Thames First Nation by London, Ontario. Um, I go by the artist name Chippewa, which is, um, I guess, a play on words being Chippewa and, you know, Chippewa, Chippewa Warrior. Kind of uh, just came up with that name, um, you know, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my artwork and how I wanted to present it. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Um, your your artwork, um, your your t-shirts and and things like that are very yeah they 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 present a very warrior spirit. Is that, I don't know if that's the correct uh, terminology to use. Um, is is there a reason? Is that personal or is that part of the uh, uh, the Chippewa heritage? I don't. I mean, I, I think uh, in any work that that you do, you know. It's, somehow if you have a freedom to do what you want you know your political views and your um your your kind of real identity kind of you know has a has a chance to show through i think just with like there's so much like so many issues within the indigenous community that it's kind of hard not to you know bring any of those forward right not to talk about them especially when you know a lot of the information that comes out about it is usually misinformation Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't really the real the real story, or, or you know, it's little part truths to to you know what's actually really happening. But what what are some of those those truths or half truths or? Oh, there's so many. You know, <laughs> where do you where do you even start with that? Right? I mean, you know. Well, let's start with you. Yeah. Tell tell me, um, how did you? Um, you're you're a tattoo artist. Um, you're a graphic artist. You you design movie posters. Um, you design album covers. I've seen uh, t-shirts. Uh, so really, you're an artist, um, a visual artist. Uh, how did that begin for you? Uh, I originally started off as a piercer back in like the early, very early 2000, and I worked for a peer, as a piercer for uh, around like six years before I got into uh, tattooing. Okay. Um, and that was sort of a gradual thing, just working in tattoo shops, watching tattooers work. You know, you just kind of pick up on it. Um, and I started doing, like, design work and artwork. Um, and then uh, kind of apprenticed into a, a tattoo artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from that, I worked um, around seven, eight years as a tattoo artist before I kind of, like, threw myself into artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, the artwork sort of came um, at the beginning I was doing sort of like kind of tattoo related artwork just as like most you know people would um, and then slowly I just kind of uh, changed that into like working you know specifically within my heritage and working within you know indigenous art I guess and mm-hmm. it kind of just blew up from that I just really uh, identified more with it and kind of went more heavily into it yeah, I'm really curious on how you um, how you identified yourself in terms of really following that passion in terms of uh, your your indigenous focus in your artwork. But I want to sort of take a take a few steps back. Um, coming to Toronto, when when did you when did you come to Toronto? I came to Toronto in uh, some late summer of '96. Yeah, but 
I mean, that was, um, you know, it was a, a weird transition. I went from Kingston, Ontario to, to, to Toronto, so it was a bit of a, okay. you know, a culture shock in that sense. But Small town to big town. Small town to big city and yeah. uh, came really ill-prepared and okay. ended, ended up homeless for a good amount of years, just like... Oh, wow. Um, so that was a you know, different time in my life. But it was during that time, though, um, I started going to... Um, like resource centers, indigenous resource centers within the city, which you know helped me reconnect with my heritage and helped yeah. me reconnect with my family. And um, was Kingston your like? Is that where you grew up? No, that's I. Well, I grew up there for around like ten years. Uh-huh. Um, but prior to that, um, you know, lived in North Bay for some time, Windsor, Ontario, for some time, and then my home community of Chippewas uh, for a while and. Yeah, man. I just I moved moved around a lot. Yeah. What what uh, what took you to all these different places? You know, between my family and then just really just me, you know, being nomadic. You know, just kind of wandering quite a bit, trying to really find myself, my identity, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Do you remember? Like, was there a a flash moment that you said, you know, this is who I am. Let me embrace it. Let me. I don't know necessarily that, but I do remember it was a drunken evening in <laughs> Kingston, Ontario. I was yeah. probably, I think, around 19, and I'm sitting on the corner of Princess Street and Division Street, and it's around 3 a.m., and there's, by then, all, most of the bars have let out, most of the people have gone. I'm kind of sitting there looking at the corner of this intersection, and there's nothing, and I'm sitting there going, is this my life? Is this, like, how what I'm going to live for the next, like... 30, 40, 50 years, this is going to be it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I had, like, made the decision to leave there and, you know, look for bigger and better. And I'd come down to Toronto maybe a month or so before and was, like, you know, just kind of in really dug the city. I came down to visit a friend, and it was just, I thought it was pretty cool, man. It was uh-huh. like you weren't uh, at the corner of Princess and Division with nothing and nobody, and, you know, it seemed... Seem right the thing to do. Let's mm-hmm. get out. What's what sort of support uh, you, you said when you came to Toronto? You went to a lot of uh, Aboriginal resource centers. Well, no, I came to Toronto and had nowhere to go. I had uh-huh. nowhere to stay. I just was committed to coming. I had no idea what it cost to get a house. I thought I could like, I could come up here and hit the fo- hit the, mm-hmm. you know, hit the newspapers and find an apartment, but not realizing what they cost or Crazy. any anything. So I just, yeah, I just. Uh, I think I I came up with like 450 bucks, 500 bucks, less than that. And, you know, found I pissed that away pretty quick and, you know, ended up ended up homeless and just kind of refused to go back to Kingston. Yeah. And yeah. How long were you homeless for? I think it was a better part of almost four years, man, of like four years off and on of like from couch surfing to to youth shelters to like small sporadic times of having you know a place to stay but never really secure but it was in that time you know of like where I you know of shelter hopping and you know working with uh, or going into the native resource centers that you know kind of help you know they get you into programming they try to get you housing they help Mm -hmm. you with like tokens and things like that that's when I had sort of like delved more into um, you know learning more about my culture and stuff Mm -hmm. what um what did you learn about your culture that that made you proud? 
I mean, there's all kinds to be proud about. Is you know, unfortunately, what you learn about then isn't about. For me, wasn't about that. For me, it was a kind of a, some insight into really more despair than than huh. than things about being proud. Um, you know, I was adopted by a non-indigenous family, so my whole understanding of uh, of native culture was really what you're taught in school and and television and and media and, and movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was like a I was led to believe it was somewhat utopian in a, in a way, and learning about it not being that way was a real shock to me. Because you know, I felt you know I felt a, a little deceived by our school system and really what happens in, mm-hmm. in indigenous communities in Canada. It's not a, it's not a utopia. That's for sure. You know, mm-hmm. there's more despair and heartbreak and poverty and, you know, a bazillion issues that, that, you know, plague these communities, even my own, my, even my own home community. Right. Mm-hmm. So. so did you always know that you were indigenous? Yeah, I was adopted when I was five. So I knew okay. growing, I knew growing up, I, I was indigenous, you yeah. know, you know, my my adopted family, uh, always, you know, they told us that, yeah. told me and my two brothers that. Okay. My older brother, you know, I'm mixed race. I'm uh, 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 Chippewa and Lebanese, whereas my brother got more of my mom's heritage. He looks, you know, more visibly native, I guess you would say, what okay. stereotypically someone would look at and go, okay, that's a native. Okay. Whereas I kind of got my father's genes and look light-skinned, yeah. green-eyed Lebanese. Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, there, there's a lot of issues you brought up. You know, a lot of issues, uh, despair that you felt, um, and you know, I don't know what it was. Um, I, I, I remember going to a powwow near, near, near where, where I live in Scarborough uh, last summer, and just being fascinated, um, you know, with, with with everything that I saw there. Um, you know, so I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was um, uh, Gore Downey you know, calling out at his last concert to Justin Trudeau on what he needed to do, um, or whether it is this whole Canada 150 um, and, and what it means to be Canadian. Um, so I don't know what it was, but probably over the past year or so, I've become more aware of, like you said, some of the despair uh, that has been happening. Everything from drinking, there is no such thing as drinking water in a lot of these communities. Um, the education levels, you know, from me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, seem to be uh, substandard. Um, there seems to be, uh, especially with the youth, uh, a lot of drug issues uh, and suicide issues uh, happening there. Um, in your opinion, wh- I mean, why is that? Like, why, why is, why are these communities? so vastly different in terms of opportunity i mean that's i mean it's a huge huge answer to that i I don't know if you have enough time for that but uh you know you you can start it off simply by understanding that the crown canada is a corporation of the crown of england Mm -hmm. of the of the english monarchy of the british monarchy canada is a crown a crown corporation it's a an a business of the crown Mm -hmm. so land ownership in canada only two percent of land in canada is occupied by indigenous people we don't own that land there is no ownership to that land we we are essentially allowed to use it under 
uh, the allowance of the of the crown. Um, the rest, 83 percent of the land mass in Canada is owned by the crown. Mm-hmm. So what's called crown land is is owned by England is owned by the British monarchy by the Queen of England and her family. Mm-hmm. So, when, you know, all of these problems, I believe that's. All of the, uh, a good amount of these problems stem from no ownership of land. There is no, we aren't in a partnership with Canada, mm-hmm. with the crown. It is, uh, we are in a, a dictatorship with the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, you want a lot of these problems to be solved, return the, return the land. Mm-hmm. Return land to indigenous peoples and not, you know, swamp land in Florida, as the old saying would go, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, all of those things stem from no, from from not having ownership over our traditional lands, not having protection of our land, water, and our resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, really, um, it's about fair. Um, it's fair payment as well for those uh, th- those land and resources. So, if you look at um, if Canada is a corporation, indigenous. Uh, indigenous people of this country are 50% shareholders of those land and resources. That was the original agreement. Those mm-hmm. are those are what uh, those treaties were about. Those mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the treaties were about was about in the sharing of that mm-hmm. um, of of that um, I guess uh, partnership. And it's not a partnership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to look at two of you know. I mean, you suicide. That's a whole other issue. I mean, there's. A, there's like you touched on so many things like you yeah. need so much time to get into all of them but you have to look at that um going you know when people have no uh connection to their homelands and their uh land it's 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 hard to deal with it's hard for me even to go i can't even go back to my home community there's no place for me to live there there's no land for me to live or to um to be there is right? there a community still yeah, there yeah for sure i mean we have we're a band of like 2,600 people, but they're uh, in about 900 or so, or no, 1,200 or so live on reserve still. Mm-hmm. But we don't own that land. That's not our land. And we, so you can't, because you don't own it, the ability to to work the land is... No, you can definitely work the land. Okay. Um, you can live there, you can work it. But in our case, you know, we have some, uh, there's, there's a lot of farmland there. But I'm saying uh, outside of a lot of communities where, you know, you have a, a community like Attawapiskat that sits on a dust field and 75 mile kilometers away, there's like one of the richest diamond mines in the world. That's in their traditional territory. They should be paid huge amounts of money for them to be there. They mm-hmm. shouldn't be living in poverty. Um, you know, and, you know, that's that's a, a good reason of, uh, I, I believe, a good reason of why, you know, people are are living the way they are. Canada wants it that way. They don't want, you talked about subpar uh, uh, education. They want it that way. They don't want Indigenous youth educated mm-hmm. because they're going to be the ones who are going to wake up and go, hey, wait a minute, I don't live the land that I live, I don't own the land that I live on. Uh, there's a diamond mine 75 miles, uh, kilometers away from me that is pulling out billions of dollars yet I don't get a piece of that they want to keep them uneducated they want to they want to uh, give subpar health care and education because it it serves the crown by having it that way you know and 
an easy example of why you don't know about these things and you're just learning about them now is because of the education system. The education is designed to keep you in the dark about it. I only learned about these things myself in my early 20s as I started educating myself. Mm -hmm. So your education, the education system is designed to keep you in the dark. It's designed to do what it did to me is like, let me believe that native communities live in a utopia where, you know, there's, everyone has a role where there's the hunters and gatherers and, you know, um, the women have their role in the community. And it isn't like that. You know, I, I believe that growing up. Mm-hmm. because of what the education system taught me. And then when I learned about that isn't how it is. And it isn't that way because of colonialism. It's because of, you know, it's straight up because of colonialism, what Canada has done to uh, reaffirm the, the, the Crown's position on owning Canada and its vast land and resources. What What can be... I mean, I don't know how to ask this, but what I mean is there a one of the things that I've that I've learned, um, generally speaking, is that the way that Western civilization is organized is not necessarily the way that all civilizations or all cultures are organized. Um, and so I'm curious: is is there something that you look to um, the leadership, the Aboriginal leadership, uh, and demand that they take more action, or or are, are are even their hands tied? Well, our leadership is locked into uh, in is is locked into a Western style of of governance, right? It's not an original style of governance. So when you have things like the Indian Act that. Uh, basically dictate how our communities are run, um, that poses a huge problem where, you know, I, I, I think that self-governance outside of the Indian Act and outside of Canada's colonial uh, clause is what, these in, what our communities need. Um, there's a push, there's a small push um, coming from a lot of, uh, you know, different communities that are, are wanting to push towards self-governance of mm-hmm. not not being under the Indian Act. The Indian Act is a very archaic, racist uh, piece of legislation that isn't designed to um, work with Indigenous communities. It's a de- designed to inhibit them. It's designed to keep them down. It's a designed to uh, allow resource extraction. It's allow, you know, that's, that's what it's about. It's not about uh, a harmonious uh, relationship. Yeah, a lot of people would think, you know, here's this Indian Act. This is this is the way that we are, uh, when I say we, like the colonialist, colonialists um, are going to work um, with the First Nations. Um, you come from the perspective of, no, that's not really what it is. It's, it's, it's a racist document. Talk to me about that. Like, what is, when you, when you look at that, or what your understanding of, of the Indian Act... Well, I mean, the Indian Act, for one, makes me a number, whereas uh, my status card makes me basically what I call a Holocaust survival number. You know, that's essentially, you know, what, you know, that as a card carrying member, what what I am, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the crown, essentially, right? Um, I think, though, it's the abolishment of the Indian Act, I don't think is like, something that will be done overnight. I think there's a 
Yeah, I don't. I, I think there's a ton of work to even get even close to that and actually have it be beneficial for Indigenous people. Um, you know, it's there's uh, the Indian Act is so thick and deep, and I can't even begin to like hmm. to explain it all. You know, it's a lot of there's so many different levels of it, but the the main the main thing is, is it's not designed to to help indigenous people. It's designed to hold them down. Hmm. Um, there's tons of questions that I have for you, so we'll jump around, and yeah. I hope I hope you don't mind. Um, what tell tell me the story about? Um, I I, don't, I, w- I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this correctly. Wendigo man, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't, you know, I think it's a, we've gone from a bit of a leap, right, between uh, some serious stuff to, you know, I guess, presumably about my artwork. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's necessarily the right bridge, but we could maybe come back to that. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. Let's, I mean, let's take, there's a, well, let's talk about this, Um, cultural appropriation in terms of sports teams. Um, you know that's been in uh, that's been in the public news um, conversation for for a while now. Um, I remember the last time the Jays were playing the team from Cleveland in the playoffs last year, um, and you know someone had um, I think tried to go to the courts and have them blocked. Yeah, I, re- I remember that. Yeah. Um. You know. Cultural appropriation is is very damaging to indigenous communities for a lot of reasons. Uh-huh. Um, sports teams, um, I think, I don't think they really necessarily heard it on a level that I think is more important. Um, sports teams perpetuate uh, racist sort of, um, you know, something like the Cleveland Indians, the Wahoo Man, or whatever he's called. If you look at that logo, I mean, it's a blatantly racist kind of brown face or black face man style logo. Uh-huh. It shouldn't be in there. It shouldn't be used. The Washington Redskins, the Redskins is a derogatory term. Yeah. It shouldn't be used to describe people. Um, but I think more importantly, um, cultural appropriation in Canada is being done on a... a a level um, that that isn't being talked about, and I, I really want to take the opportunity to, to bring that to light. Um, okay, yeah. I'm I'm actually working on a campaign to to bring that to light. So, Parks Canada, uh, in Aboriginal Tourism Canada, um, Indigenous Affairs Canada, all these different levels of government, mm-hmm. um, they help perpetuate cultural appropriation. Um, And they do it by through the sale of of artwork and through the sale of uh, what, you know, you would call native art trinkets, dream catchers, uh, all of these sort of things. So if you go to any like sort of Parks Canada gift shop, Uh their shelves are stocked full of culturally appropriated uh, artworks. And so, for example, there's a, a native run art gallery in old Montreal that I work with that I've shown my work in mm-hmm. and she struggles to stay open for a lot of different reasons but a, 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 one of the reasons is that surrounding her are all these other little galleries and gift shops that are selling knockoff made 
native trinkets. So they can buy a third world made uh, dream catcher for, you know, a dollar, 50 cents, who knows, something very, very cheap, where she's buying them directly from the grandmothers and the aunties uh, and the craft makers in indigenous communities, and she's buying them at fair market value. So what she has to turn around and mark that up to um, makes it really difficult for her to sell that item because down the street you can get a, a knockoff of it for 10 bucks mm-hmm. or 5 bucks, where she has to sell hers for double to triple that. Um, but it's not just the dream, you know, dream catchers, it's artwork. It's, um, you know, it's like oral stories. It's like things to, there's so many items being ripped off and there, we should have protection over that. You know, Canada has implemented the, the rights to indigenous, the declaration of indigenous people. And one of those declarations is the, the right to protect our intellectual property and to protect our artwork and our Mm -hmm. stories and our histories. Uh, and our storytelling, um, and Canada needs to implement that. They need to follow through and implement um, protection over that. You know, for example, if I was a, a, a store across the street from here and I sold handbags and I got caught selling knockoff Louis Vuitton handbags, I'd have those confiscated. They'd be taken away. Yeah, we should have that same thing happening to uh, third world made indigenous style trinkets and gifts. Um, because it hurts our communities, right? Like our, we could support our communities by buying from the north, selling in the south type uh, ideas, and we can't, um, we can't make a living when you have Parks Canada, you have Tourism Canada, all these gift shops, and uh, selling these knockoff made goods. At, so they're literally know. knockoffs. They're not. Oh well, they're you know they've taken a dream catcher and they're buying they're sourcing it from a third world country that can do it for pennies on the dollar, because they're paying their you know what you know we would call slave wages right yeah. you know, third world uh, wages right, um, and they're cheap and they're knockoffs right they're not you know they're they're not made with the love and care that goes into the you know and. It's, it's it's not right, and I think that's cultural appropriation that hasn't been tackled in this country, and it needs to be it needs to be addressed. I mean, there's gift shops here in Toronto that sell the same same things I'm describing. You can go to any gift shop, sure, in Toronto that is a Canada gift shop, and you're going to find the shelves full of knockoff, shitty made, third world made uh, artwork. Why isn't anything being done like? Legally, um, you know, because it's a hard, I, I, you know, I don't know necessarily. I think for me, it's like, you know, this was an aha moment I had talking to my friend who owns the gallery in Montreal. We had this conversation maybe six weeks ago, and that's when we, I kind of like set it in motion going, okay, we need to, we need to address this. Um, hmm. And, you know, it, it isn't just that, though. It's also, for example, two days ago, someone showed me a local Toronto artist who is doing Norvell Morso knockoff paintings. Who is that, Tom? So Norvell Morso is a Anishinaabe, uh, one of Canada's most famous woodlands painter. He has paintings in the AGO. Um, his work is very, very prolific. It's um, He really essentially, uh, I would say, really invented this style of uh, Indigenous uh, storytelling through his artwork okay. um, uh, of what would be called Woodland's art. And uh, 
his work is very spiritual and he's telling very important oral history through his work and this what I believe is an Italian girl is basically just copying his work and selling it off what she said is I've taken woodland style artwork because I'm inspired and I'm making it my own there's, there's nothing about what she's done making it her own there is no making that your own mm -hmm. you can't make it your own it's his um, and there's been a, a bit of a blow up on social media about what, what she's done and rightfully so she should not be doing it you know uh and not only that, she's profiting from it. So there's a gallery here in Toronto who's going to show her work when mm. that gallery can be showing a straight-up, legitimate Indigenous artist who does Woodlands art and mm -hmm. being respectful um, of it. And, yeah, I mean, you know, her responses have been, you know, her hiding behind, well, I'm honouring you, I'm inspired, and all of this thing that just doesn't wash. It's not, it's not good enough for you to be taking someone's, you know, culturally significant, especially with, with his work, because he's so well known. There, there's, you can ask any indigenous artist and they know who he is, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like, so, and she, like I said, she hasn't changed it. It's their blatant copy. She signed, she's signing her name the same way he does. She's taken his same color palettes and used them and hasn't, hasn't changed it. She hasn't at all made it her own. I'm curious if it's the same sort of argument um, that's been used uh, when when a lot of Indigenous people talk about Joseph Joseph Boyden. Well, yeah, that, I I don't know if it's really the same. You know, he's yeah, I don't know. He, I guess, I guess people's issues with that is he's taking you know oral stories, oral history, and making it his own. I don't really. You know, I don't. I can't really say enough about that. You know, on the stories he's telling, I'm not that well versed in those stories. But you know, the controversy surrounding him is that he's taking those stories, and you know, making them, making them his own. And you know, I, I can't speak enough. I don't know him personally. I don't know his heritage or where he comes from. But you know, I can't. You know, for me, I'm more in it within the. Yeah visual arts but at the same time you know the declaration of uh, indigenous rights or or protect protect those stories so you know if he is doing it you know he shouldn't be right mm -hmm. you know, he should have some respect to, to um, from what I've read there there are some people that consider him uh, a member of the First Nations community and others that that don't is, is that is I don't like I don't know is, is that a is that just mincing of words, or, or is that... Well, I, I don't know. I, there's a somewhat of a divide, I would say. There's the people... Generally, I feel, from what I've seen, the people that do consider him part of the community have something to gain from it. Mm. It's the little grassroots people that are the ones standing back going, no, you, you're just taking. You're not actually contributing. You're just taking. Where... You know, the people that are saying all right with it, you know, they're probably in some way connected to him in those same circles who are takers, right? Yeah. It's, it's it was, is, it, is this tiring for you in terms of, like, all of this, you know, there seems to be, like, a lot of battles, and not just with the Aboriginal community. I mean, there's so many 
communities in Canada and North America, around the world, um, they're always uh, seem to be fighting against the quote-unquote powers that be. I'm curious from your perspective, in terms of fighting against cultural appropriation, fighting uh, against uh, the Indian Act, um, does it get exhausting for you personally? Absolutely. You know, like someday, I mean, some days I just have to like not get involved and um, yeah, it can be, it's, it can be really exhausting, you know, and what, you know, a a friend of mine said, you know, it's not your job to educate non-Indigenous people um, and to constantly be fighting things. It's like, just, 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 just do your work and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of focus on that. I mean, at the same time, I mean, I've had, I mean, the shirt I'm wearing, um, it says, you know, Oh, Canada, your home on native land. I had a man from up by Barrie flip out and leave some racist comments on, on, on the shirt. And, you know, most people would engage uh, when they have things uh, thrown at them like that. They would ga- engage in like a negative way. They would fight back. Whereas I don't really fight that way. I prefer to get inside their head and understand why they tick and hmm. what makes them think that way. And more times than any, you're going to find that it's because they're misinformed. It's because they have misinformation being thrown at them on a daily basis that they're going to say things that they just hear. It's like a child throwing a tantrum, you know. Um, in the end, that's what I did. I wrote to him and I said, hey, man, are you all right? Why are you so angry? What's, what's, your, what's your problem? You know, are you okay? And in the end, you know, it came out that he didn't like me changing the words to the national anthem, which I said, okay, fair enough. You're entitled that to your, to your opinion. Yeah. But what you're, you're also entitled to say whatever you want, but you should be really conscious of what you're saying because just, you know, he deleted his racist comments. Mm. And I called him on it saying, you know, just because you delete them doesn't erase them from history. They've been screen captured and they've been saved. Mm-hmm. You, can't get, you can't just throw that away. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, though... Um, well, his comment was essentially saying, you know, like, you know, you know, that, you know, Canada needs to stop, like, paying, paying the Indians, essentially, and that, uh, you know, and, you know, cutting the welfare lines and, you know, all of this sort of nonsense and, you know, should we, uh, it was some comment to, oh, if you don't like it in here in Canada, why don't you go live in Syria? It's like, man, like, it doesn't even, it's not even remotely the same. Mm. Um but, you know, in the end, I, I got into his head a little bit and figured out why he said what he said. And then, it, you know, it came to the conclusion that he is misinformed, is that he thinks that money that Native communities receive is a welfare um, hmm. and, it, and that it's tax dollars. No money that Indigenous communities received is tax dollars. All of that money comes from... Uh, from a trust fund that's, you know, over 140 years old. It's worth trillions upon trillions of dollars. I didn't dollars. know that. Okay, so tell where did this come from? Well, it's a trust that was set up over 140 years ago. Um, it was part of uh, a way that, uh, you know, that indigenous peoples of this country would be always cared for. And then also, too, that money comes from land and resources, right? So, you know, um, but the government... Uh, purposefully misinforms you for the per- for for their for their mm. gain, right? So when you hear on television, on the news, someone saying, 
well, we're going to cut funding to First Nations for housing. We're going to cut funding for health care. We're going to cut funding and so on. They're leading you to believe that they're funding it. They're not funding it. Hmm. They're using the word funding to misguide you mm. when really what that money is, is it's our trust fund payments. Who manages that trust fund? Do you know? The crown. The so government. They, so they even control that? They control that. They not only control our trust fund, they control our lands, right? Because we don't have ownership of that barely 2% of land in Canada. It's owned and, it's owned and held in trust by the crown. There is no ownership of it. Um, even if I had a piece of land on my reserve, it's under a hundred year lease, just like the rest of Canada's land. Like you own your home, you own your property, you don't own it. Yeah, it's nobody under, has a home ownership, I mean, land ownership here. It's leased. Yeah. It's a lease from the crown, right? Hmm. So, you know, that, that wording allows people like him to think that it is tax dollars yeah. and they they which that helped perpetuate uh stereotypes and racism through the through wording i'll tell you this from my perspective it, it wouldn't i would not be angry one bit if as much tax dollars were going to these communities um i i'm i'm Astounded that there's but actually zero tax dollars. But go zero, to, zero, zero, yeah, tax dollars go to these. And, and the reason I say it is because, you know, I've had the good fortune of being able to travel, uh, you know, not as much as other people, but more so than a lot of others. Um, and so I've been to countries where, um, you know, they they live on dirt floors. Um, and and when I think of that, I think of that not in Canada, right? This is this is elsewhere. This is. This is the third world, right? This, this is um, Africa where my parents fled. This is not in Canada. Well the, well, the UN has stated that there's third world conditions in Canada which on First Nations communities. Which, I don't know if shock is the right word, but it's like, this can't be. Like, not here. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if, if there are, within driving distance, places, communities um, that don't have drinkable water... And that, it's just, it shouldn't be. Like, not in this country. Well, it's not just the drinkable water. It's the housing. It's the, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, the education. The, you know, there, there's just so many issues that create a third world situation, right? It isn't, it isn't one. It's a whole number of things, right? Um, you know, it's... People don't know about it, right? And it's the same as this gentleman. He's misinformed because of the media saying, you know, when they use that word funding, that word has to be stripped from the conversation. Call mm -hmm. it what it is. Don't call it funding because it allows people to think that it's tax dollars. Yeah. And you shouldn't think that it's tax dollars. When you think it's tax dollars, it makes people angry because they think that they're supporting us and it's and, and, and they're not, right? Hmm. Wow. Um I had um, I, I I love listening to podcasts. I don't know if you you do as well, but there's a um, an Aboriginal woman who works for the CBC, Connie Walker. Yeah, I know Connie. You know Connie. Yeah. You know her personally. I've met her a few times. You know, uh, um, I'd love to have her yeah, in here and, yeah. and chat. But she she put together a series, uh, Missing and Murdered, um, Who Killed Alberta Williams? I think that's what it was called. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with with this work? 
Oh, absolutely. Like I do, I personally, um, you know, support um, through through my artwork, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, um, work that I do that is like directly um, related to it. And I do t-shirts, I do uh, paintings and artwork that help help raise awareness on it. Um, I've, I met Connie at a recent event, um, uh, you know, that was uh, CBC did on the missing and murdered. It's a hard, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a hard topic to for people to engage in, right? And it was as as I was listening to her podcast, um, one of the things that I think even she was surprised at, or, or maybe one of her producers was surprised at was the there there was the the relationship between the RCMP and um the First Nations people um there was no there was no sense of cooperation and she says yeah cuz there's there's this overriding mistrust um because since you know I don't know when because of this, you know, these missing and murdered women, um, that why should you know even uh, the sister of the family of Alberta Williams trust the people that say that they're trying to check in and solve the case and stuff like that? And, and, and it shocked me to uh, to know and finally understand and click in my mind that you know this is this podcast wasn't necessarily about you know one woman, um, but it was about this whole issue. Of how um, the First Nations people, and, and maybe specifically women from the First Nations, are treated, um, you know, by our quote-unquote representatives, whether it's the RCMP or, or politicians. I mean, it's all connected for sure. I mean, how do you go for? How do you have over twelve hundred missing and murdered women? Um, and there not be a connection to the police and the judicial system, and there, there's a definitely clear connection to it. Um, you know, also there's a clear connection to the missing and murdered women and girls, to connection to the land and the water, and all you know, all all of it. There's a huge, it's a huge picture. It isn't just one one isolated thing. You know, and there is definitely mistrust. Uh, amongst the police, right? There, you know, there's ca- been known cases of police um, being involved in uh, human trafficking and in here in Canada. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, there's uh, there's there's agencies in Winnipeg that say, you know, that they believe that there's a direct connection between the policing and the mis- missing and murdered. And I think there's a there's a bigger picture as well, and there, people would say it's conspiracy and. You, you you might come off as a crackpot even saying it, but you know we have the fastest growing population in Canada of young people, and who how do you stem the growth of uh, of people is through the women, through the destroying of the women right and mm-hmm. uh, and, and girls, um, you know I think people would think you you know you're crazy to say something like that and that you know Canada's responsible in that but you know. Is it far fetched? Uh, who knows, right? You know, you, you don't really know. Hmm. Um, I think the first time I ever heard of residential schools as a term, 
I, I didn't clue in. Like to me, when I heard residential schools, I thought, oh, a school in near homes. Okay, these these uh, these Aboriginal kids um, had a home and they went to school. That's how ignorant I was. And and then it's only later. Um, and sometimes I just I'm just mad at myself. It's like, how did I not know this until I'm, until now? You know, um, and, and to know and to finally realize that this this is like recent history. This is not old. This is this just recently ended. These residential schools. Um, so with all of these things, Jay, um, when they talk about truth and reconciliation, what is that, and then what does that mean to you? Well, I think it's like partial truths and no reconciliation because I don't, I don't, I don't believe any of it to be really true. I've yet to see it. Um, I believe the the truth reconciliation commission comes from a good place. They they want to do good, but I think at the same time it's being done under the guidance of the crown, whereas they're controlling the na- the narrative of what's actually happening. And at the same time, I believe. Residential school, yes, it was hor- it was horrific. The things that happened were horrific. Yes, it still it went on for quite a long time, and it and um, but it's still happening. That's one thing that people don't understand. That like it's still today. It's still happening today. They've just shifted of how it's happening. Um, you know, the residential school has deeply affected my community. My grandfather attended residential school. It hurt. It hurt our family, um, but. What people don't understand is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has also been designed, like I said, to control the narrative. It's, a, it's, a, it's in a way to allow the conversation only to be about one issue. And the real issue isn't residential school, to me. It's what's stemmed off of that. And that is the missing and murdered. It's the, the loss of land, the, the, um, the uh, resource extraction, the... Uh, the mass poverty, the third world conditions, the suicide rates among the youth, the, um, and actually something else is that they're saying is like elder suicide is going to be coming into the forefront of, uh, into our community as well. Um, and I mean, all of those issues are stemmed off of residential school. Uh, do you hear those being talked about like residential schools are being talked about? No, because the mm-hmm. government was was faced with having that brought forward. And now the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was designed and set up to control a narrative. And the narrative is to keep that talking about only residential schools, not everything else. Yeah. You know, if Gord Downey wants to really talk about something, talk about talk about what's be, what's happening today and now. And currently there are 163,000 indigenous children in foster care far more than any child that ever went through residential school system so and when you say foster care like there have these kids they're, been- they're essentially apprehending indigenous children and putting them through into non-indigenous home which is a process of assimilation um, just the same as I would. In 1982, my mother was forced to give me uh, and my two brothers up for adoption. Wow. Um, they, she was given the option is either you put them up for adoption 
or they become crown wards of the CAS and we split them up. That's what the threat was, is that they would split me and my two siblings up and we'd never see each other again. So that was what you would know as the 60s scoop, which the 60s scoop didn't happen only in the 60s. It was kind of when they started phasing out residential schools and then they began that sort of process of removing Indigenous children from their families and basically assimilating them into non-Indigenous homes. Whereas for me, it was a loss of culture and identity. But that's happening at an alarming rate today. I mean, I think it's something like a kid a day, a newborn a day is being taken from their family. I I can't remember the the statistic. And then all of the other children um, that are in care that are going into non-Indigenous homes and being those parents not having the the legal recourse to get their children back. That isn't being talked about. That's not in the media. It's a, it, and it's being done far worse than ever. Uh, more, sorry, uh, more than any other children ever attended residential school. Wow. Is there? Let me ask you this. Um, Canada one hundred and fifty. So my my sister, she 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 had this. She wanted me to ask you this. Um, she said, you know, so here's her comment. I'll just read it. I don't like hockey, beer, or winter. And now more than ever, Canada 150 has me questioning what my Canadian identity is. Um, and she wanted to ask you, do you, like, what, what is your Canadian identity? I don't have a Canadian identity. I'm not a Canadian. I'm Anishinaabe. Um, I don't identify as Canadian other than on the government idea that they make me have. Um, I don't think Indigenous people want to be Canadian. I don't think that's our goal, is to be a Canadian. Um, our agreement in Canada was that you be Canadians, we be, we be Indians, and yeah. let us do our thing, and you do your thing. And we don't impede on each other's lifestyle, and we don't get involved in, in, other, in, in, in our ways and your ways. We don't intersect. We live harmoniously, and that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Canada 150 is a super large propaganda machine, and huge amount of their budget is about hiding that truth. So people can say, you know, I'm Canadian because of this and that, and at the end of the day, you know, you're living on stolen land. You're living in a country where your government... Uh, is assimilating indigenous children into their uh, society. They've committed genocide in this country, um, and it's still happening. And it's not; it hasn't stopped, and it's going to continue to go on until non-indigenous Canada wakes up and goes, "What's being done is wrong," and we we can't continue to sit by any longer and watch it happen. Hmm. When um, the Dakota Access Pipeline, I think it's called, down in the States, when that was going on, it was, um, did you did you find any inspiration in that? I mean, the Dakota Access Pipeline is a huge monster, but I mean, there's pipelines that go through my traditional territory yeah. that we have in the Supreme Court that we're fighting. Um, it was done without consultation 40 years ago. And we're in courts fighting, fighting it. Um, so I mean, pipelines are you know, pi- pipelines are are uh, 
are crisscrossing all over North America, right? And done without the consultation or approval of Indigenous communities and at harm to Indigenous mm-hmm. communities. And not only harm to them, it harms everybody because if those waterways are poisoned, it doesn't just affect Indigenous people, it affects everybody, yeah. right? I'm just I'm curious about the protest. When I saw that protest, um, I, I felt inspired. Um, and so I'm curious if, if in Canada, so my real question is, is do you think there'll be this sort of passionate protest in your face? Um, I don't want to use the word militant um, protest here in Canada. The only militant was the non-Indigenous people. The Indigenous people were there peacefully protesting. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. There was Fair no, enough. there was no, there was yeah. nothing militant about what they did. Yeah, it was the complete opposite. They were there, uh, not only for themselves, but they were there uh, for. They were there for everyone. For, for everybody, exactly yeah, yeah. right. Um, I don't think Indigenous people really protest violently unless. Uh, they're being met with violence, right? Violence just ensues more violence, right? Yeah. Um, no, you're right there. Um, I don't know. I, th- you know, I, I personally tried not to get in, involved in any of the Dakota Access Pipeline stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a conscious choice at the beginning of that. Not Why to, was that? Not, um, you know, I think it was uh, by the time it even came into the the spotlight. I think it was already too late. So mm. I, I prefer to focus my energy on things that, you know, maybe I can have a little bit of an impact on. That I didn't think I could really uh, contribute positively. Okay. Right? So, Fair enough. Uh, I guess it's about picking your battles, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. I, I feel like I've been bombarding you with, there's this problem, there's this problem, there's this problem, and then this problem. So I can understand that. Holy crap, it's like every day you go through this stuff. Yeah. I mean, back even to, like, the Canada 150 stuff is... Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of propaganda. Um, it's a lot of uh, again little truths. It's a lot of hiding. It's you know, tell the real story. If you want to have something called truth and reconciliation, you first have to have truth. You have to first admit what was happened, what happened. And I mean, even the example of you have a man. Uh, Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, adorned on street names and buildings. He's on the $10 bill. Mm -hmm. That man personally was responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Indigenous people by the the slaughtering of the buffalo. Um, And that's something that Canada choose just to say, well, you know, it wasn't cool, it wasn't right, but, you know, it's done, there's nothing we can do. But they won't acknowledge him as a racist. They won't acknowledge him as a mass murderer, and they should. Um, wow. But that goes back into truth. That's, you know, we're, we're, if we want to celebrate Canada, you know, don't, don't, don't hide behind all, all your, all your uh, terrible, you know, all the terrible things. Admit those in order to have reconciliation you have to admit your faults you mm-hmm. know you can't you can't continue to hide those and sweep them under the rug to think you're ever going to have uh, reconciliation in this country and you know they for good reason they hide them because it's embarrassing it's horrific you know Canada needs to take take responsibility if you knew of all of the messed up things that were done 
how would how how could you walk around this country um, blindly supporting it? You know, but they want it that way. You know. So let me ask you this for myself: um, what what can individuals do, um, and not just for this year, but like on a day to day basis? What what can we do to um, you know, I, I don't imagine or believe that any one person is going to change history um, right away. But I think um, we can take, you know, small individual steps and actions um, that could over a period of time create something large. So, like, you know, what would your advice be to someone like me, you know, as I live day to day to turn things to make things right? Let's see. Um, I think educate yourself um, about indigenous history in this country because what you know about it, for the most part, is skewed and it's not the truth. Mm -hmm. So in order for you to be able to go and do those things, you first need to know the real truth the real truth of like the treatment of indigenous people in this country and what's from the past right up until the present day. I mean, even in this conversation here, you've, you've learned about things that you didn't know about. Yeah. And those are things that you need to know about because what's being taught in our schools and what's being taught through the media aren't the truths. And so I think it's like taking, taking like the opportunity to educate yourself and, and, you know that's that's the best advice I can give to you. And, mm -hmm. You know you've taken the time to reach out to me, reach out to other people, and try to have other conversations. Oh, definitely. Go go out into the indigenous communities and don't just learn about you know the glamorous you know the glamorous you know Hollywood Indian crap. Get out there and and uh, you know learn about real stories. Go into communities. Go in and uh, you know meet meet with people so you can you know come back into the city and say well you know. The new form of residential school is it was the sixty scoop followed by child apprehension. Mm -hmm. You know, you knowing that the next time someone wants to have that oh oh those poor children in residential school, you can say, well, you know what, you know it's what followed that? It's still going on, and here's how it's happening because they don't know about that. Wow. Right? Um, you want to talk about you know third world countries needing clean access to clean water while there's communities in Canada that need clean water yeah you know to country uh, you know again uh, subpar education well in other countries that's happening here you know there's all of these issues that are happening abroad that people like to focus on but yet you have all of these third world conditions within your own country mm -hmm. you know start talking about them are there one of the things that that uh my wife and I and our son want to do this year is, is sort of go to different places in Canada that we haven't been to. A um, couple of reasons. One, Canada 150. Another reason is that we definitely don't... We were going to do some... We like baseball, and so we were going to do some ballpark visits in the States, but we're not going at least for four years. Um, are there? I'm curious. Are there places here in in Ontario that we can go to um like places where uh, like like um ab aboriginal homes or, or or communities that we can go to to learn 
I couldn't really answer that that you know that well for you, but I would I would suggest you know go on like uh, powwows.com I believe, and you can see uh, you know the, get on the powwow trail and go into these indigenous communities that are throwing uh, that put on their annual powwows because it's a great place to meet indigenous people and talk to them and learn about their cultures really from a direct a direct point of view rather than you know what you're going to see on television or mm-hmm. in movies um you know and i i think another thing that you should really consider is not participating in canada 150 celebrations if you want to participate in things participate in the anti-150 celebrations or not really celebrations but maybe demonstrations because by you taking part in these is you're reaffirming their propaganda and i think that's harmful I think that it's, uh, you know, I think it, I, I think by by doing that, you know, you just you you help them, right? Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't be helping them. You want to really you you want to tell the truth of this country and what's happening today. Is you shouldn't you don't have anything to celebrate. You don't. You really don't. So, Jay, tell me, how did you go from? I know you still um, you're still a tattoo artist. And you have a studio here mm-hmm. in Toronto. Yeah. What's the name of the studio? It's Armored Soul Tattoos. Okay. And where is it at? Uh, it's Queen in Tecumseh. Queen oh. Street West in Tecumseh, just uh, west of Bathurst. Cool. Um, and do you, is it focused on um, indigenous designs or art? or? Um, I or mean, I've, I've sort of transitioned. I'm about probably, I'd say, like 80% out of tattooing and... Uh, I just really just more focus on my artwork these days. But mm-hmm. um, when I do tattoo, I try to just do like indigenous style content rather than, you know, just like, uh, you know, the typical things that are being done right now, I yeah. guess. Yeah, cool. It's, so how did you go into, you know, everything from like uh, T-shirt designs, posters, album covers? You know, when did when did that take place? Um, I'd have to say I kind of had this shift back in the very beginning probably about four or five years ago when the idle no more movement started Mm. um at the same time of that starting there was the election for the national chief and so i was watching all the election on uh for the national chief on like c-span or some channel like that i just found like really interesting um and I was watching Idle No More and all these protests started to start happening. So it kind of like it woke me up a little because prior to that, I was really just kind of delved in into the tattoo industry. I wasn't really at all, you know, doing anything remotely close to doing like indigenous art. Yeah. Um, I guess it was just all like the protests and all what, you know, seeing all the youth out there and what they're protesting about and all those issues. And then I'm simultaneously watching all these uh individuals who are trying to run for national chief and they're bringing forward all these issues and i thought i just had this kind of like wake up moment right man i like you know um i need to do something i need to try to get involved and i just started you know thinking like how would i get involved what would be my role in that and that's when i came up with doing artwork and then publishing my artwork under kind of a pseudo name and kind of doing it with the name to have some sort of power you know, some power behind it, you know, and mm-hmm. some meaning behind it. And then, yeah, it just sort of grew from that. I started doing a couple of pieces and 
did a, actually more than a couple of pieces. Did a bunch of pieces, and they got and they get, and then everything got kind of shelved for about almost a year or so. And I went and just traveled, okay. took some time off, went and traveled in Europe a bit, and then came mm-hmm. back. And then when I came back, that whole time I was there, I was still researching things. I was still kind of like building up my ideas of what I wanted to do and how I was going to do it. And then I, I uh, yeah, I came back, uh, back to Toronto and just dove right in and, mm. and started doing it. And I got a great response from them. You know, the Indigenous community really liked what I was doing. It was it's a fresh take on, you know, Indigenous art, I guess. Yeah. But, I remember when I first went on onto your website, um... I loved the designs. I loved it. I said, okay, I'm going to get this T-shirt. And, I, and then I thought, man, if somebody sees me wear this, um, you know, an indigenous person, are they, am I going to get, like, attacked? Well, one thing, man, you're a brown dude, so you'll be, you'll be all right, man. <laughs> you know, generally, other minorities have been our allies, right? Okay. You know, so you're, you're safe probably because of, on a, racially, a racial term of it, right? You fair, should be fair, safe. Fair. But on another level, is like... Cultural appropriation is wrong when it's like a huge corporation taking in indigenous identity or spirituality or imagery mm-hmm. and using it for capital gain. By you wearing my gear, being non-indigenous, you're directly supporting uh, my business. You're supporting yeah. my entrepreneurship. You're supporting my artwork, which is what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Going in and buying it in the mall at, at a van store where you see them using... Uh, that sort of imagery, that's when you don't support it. Mm-hmm. That's when I would have a problem with you wearing it, for yeah. sure. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't if uh, if it was otherwise. Yeah. And if someone did come up to you and did say something to you about it, it probably isn't going to be the indigenous community. If they did, they probably, mm-hmm. they know my work. For A lot of people know my work, so you know, I don't think you'd ever have a problem, you know. Yeah, it'll be uh, someone else, like the guy from Barrie. Um, no, even then, I mean, I don't think he would even then would would say anything i don't know it's it's hard mm-hmm. you know I, I i i think i know what you're saying yeah. of cultural appropriation but i don't yeah, think yeah. you have you have any cool. i get i get that asked all the time when people come when i go to non uh when i'm not at powwows and i go to other events and i'm selling my work people i get that question every time really and i, I give them the same answer yeah no, man you you know wear it yeah. support me awesome know? man um you've got an art show coming up in uh, in Hamilton, yeah, that's tell me um, about that. I've done a new series of paintings. Uh, there's ten in the series. My last series of paintings were uh, what I called Indigenous movie monsters, and it was taken from the 40s and 50s uh, iconic you know horror movies. So you know Frankenstein, Dracula, mm-hmm. uh, the werewolf, and I essentially made them Indigenous characters. Yeah. Um, so this series almost like a reverse. Appropriation. Um, I don't know. I, I've I've said that myself before. Reverse appropriation, but I don't yeah. think so. I mean, I think appropriation is when you're taking something and you're doing you're you're taking. Uh, I guess really like spiritual icons and mm. storytelling icons and and uh, making them your own. And like I was saying about that girl, she's just carbon copying. You know, one of Canada's most famous Indigenous painters, and copying his work and saying it's her own. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I wouldn't call it appropriation. You know, I'm putting a spin on work that's already been done. I don't really call it appropriation. Yeah, yeah I, I guess. But yeah. Um, so tell me, yeah. So this new collection that you've you've done now. They're kind of you know they're they're based on the cult classics of the '80s. 
okay. which was for me, you know, I'm an 80s kid. Well, I'm, you know, I grew up watching movies then is like the most, I've seen every one of those iconic 80s movies from, you know, The Terminator to, you know, The Lost Boys to The Outsiders and, wow. um, you know, the Ghostbusters, you know, all of these films, like we all grew up watching those. Indigenous or not, we everyone grew up sure, watching these. Sure. So, you know, it's just, I love cinema. And, and then I just love the style of movie poster art. You know, you, you get a little glimpse of the story through the artwork. Um, and it's just, they're just fun, you know, great colors. The 80s uh, palette of colors is just great between those, like, you know, those different hues of blues and the reds and the neon and, you know, all, all those glows they had to it. So it was... Um, yeah, man, it's just, I think it's just a fun series to do. But again, you know, people, people sort of grasp and want to create more about it. So you're kind of sometimes pushed into telling more story than really was there. Mm. Like I had to do an artist talk last year when I presented some of my, those movie monsters. And when I first set out to do it, I just wanted to do something cool, some cool imagery. I thought it'd be pretty rad to make Frankenstein native. There was no political statement meant. They, not at the beginning, but as you go, you can see, you can create connections to anything. There's sure. always going to, you're always going to find ways to connect things to it, right? So you can retell those stories of, uh, you know, through, through indigenous identity, you can tell those stories, right? There's... No, it was even same with all of these 80s, 80s ones, right? I mean, back to the I'm doing Back to the Future, and you know, you can take Back to the Future, Ugh. make Marty and Doc indigenous characters, and where would they go? You know, and hmm. my story, I, they're going back to 1491 to stop Christopher Columbus from ever hitting the shores. They're going back to tell those indigenous people of the islands to say, these are monsters, destroy them. Anytime you see a boat, a tall ship coming through, destroy them. Mm -hmm. Anytime you see a white man, destroy them. Never let them set foot onto this continent. Mm -hmm. um, you could, in every one of those movies, you could create a story like that. So I think, you know, I think it's just fun as well, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for all the time that you spent here talking to me. Yeah, so I didn't get to say that the, the show is at the yes. Art Gallery of Hamilton mm -hmm. uh, in the Annex. Uh, on James Street. On James it? Street. Awesome. Yeah, and that goes on... Uh, June 9th? June 9th, starting, I think, I believe, at 6.30. Awesome. And it's for the, uh, it'll be part of the Hamilton Art Crawl. Perfect. So Art yeah. Gallery of Hamilton on the Annex, James Street, June 9th. Uh, check out Jay Soul's work. Thanks for having me, man. Cheers.